0: For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com Hi, it's Tuesday morning. A lot on the plate. Um, like us say a few words about Sarbatavis today. Of course, it's is the fast day of Sarbatavis. Uh, I remember what we said in the past, but uh, for this year, um, but before I say anything, this is being sponsored by the Elbaum family, uh, by Howard Elbaum, Ari Elbaum, and the whole family for their uncle passed away, or Howard's brother, I should say, Gerald Elbaum. Uh, let's see what he has here. Yaakov Kappel Ben Menachem. Sari Elbaum who was uh, named after Yaakov Koppel Likover. if you know there was a Hasidic. He was someone who had unwavering dedication to Yiddishkeit and his family. He devoted his life to those two pillars, by making sure his kids, all of them Shomri Torah received a Jewish education. Nothing made him happier than to see his kids go to Yeshiva in Israel. He had a love for Frumkite. He made a point to be close with the Rabbanim and to learn with them. He, he was always attending my lectures to have some kind of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, funny remark. He was staunchly pro-Israel, always on top of the latest news coming in and out of Israel. I'm sure many people listening to this are the type that in the morning, the first thing they open is the News from Israel. He maintained a close correspondence with his cousin Azer Weitzman, and Azer Weizmann's wife Ruba. I bet you there are a lot of young people that are listening as they have no idea Azer Weitzman used to be president of Israel before they had to come into the Air Force. Uh, while Gerald Elbaum's kids were learning yeshiva in Israel, he arranged for them to meet with Azer Weitzman, who was the president. Gerald Yaakov Kapl was nymphed during the week of Parshish Vayechi. When it mentions Yaakov Inu's death, Yaakov, uh, so his name was Yaakov Kapl. Yaakov Lomace. As we know, several of his children and grandchildren now carry his name, and uh, hopefully will carry dedication to the Torah family and Israel. Uh, you know, very nice. To very nice. Pay tribute to his memory. Uh, a tape is always a little bit funny, simply because, as I think everybody knows, more or less, it's the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. On the other hand, why that? And to be perfectly honest, it never exactly says it in the place you would expect. Because if you look in the book of Malachib, or Debreyamim, we have the straightforward chronicle of the history of Israel. The kings, including the Chorban, they, if I, I think they don't mention the beginning of the siege. Uh, they just mention the perversity of the kings of Judah. And for the most part, that's true in the book of Yirmiyahu, again, talks about all this at length. I think it's in Yecheskel where... Um, if I remember correctly, where uh, God tells Yechezkel, who is not living in Israel, because the prophet Yechezkel, who I mentioned this the other day, was um, a coin from round one when Nebuchadnezzar carried off the uh, Golos Yehoyachin. Right? Remember, the the exiles of the Jews always took place in two phases. A, followed by B. That happened in the north and then in the south. In the north, you had the kingdom of the 10 tribes first, and it was destroyed by Ashur, the Assyrian Empire. If you'll take a look, you'll see the first half of them were carried off, like the Galil and the Avayardin, and all that. And then a number of years later, the rest were carried off. The idea simply being that you had a warning not to do Chuba. If you didn't do Chuba, heck with you. Same thing happened in the south, um, because once the kingdom of the north of the 10 tribes was exiled and wiped out all that was left was the king of Yehuda of course I believe everybody knows this listening to this and uh, King Yehuda is pretty small of course they had your shrine base in Megdash, but they messed it up with aboutzar Gilash Kadom and all the rest of it and uh, the new Empire that had to deal with the Gaish Empire was uh, Bavel Babylonia who conquered ashur and um, The prophets of Israel, like Jeremiah, always kept saying, don't mess with them. Like I say, the state of Israel is not Masugal to to have a war with Putin or China or something like that. That's that's not what you do. Uh, And so why would a small kingdom, a little tiny kingdom like Yehuda, get involved in international events? Uh, You know, should Israel... Get involved in Korean War, in in Vietnam War, I mean, we we can't do that. So, uh, that but but the kings of Yehuda did do that, and as a result, they ticked off Bavel because I'm sure I've said this before. Um, the The fundamental world politics of the biblical eras, especially the period we're talking about, was pretty simple. You have the Middle East. And you have a whole bunch of small states. And you have one or two biggies. And the biggies are going to, so to speak, swallow the small states. By which I mean that the biggies are going to become the, the superpower and the others have to kiss up to them. Pay them tribute, whatever. Something like that. However, even if you are subordinate and pay tribute, you are still left autonomous. Uh, this was really the model of... Most of the time in the ancient world, uh you had what you call suzerainty, which means that there's a, a powerful nation uh that dominates the others and um what do you call it the dominant, and the result is that it uh you know is able to compel the smaller nations to follow along and do what it wants, and the smaller nations bow down to them and kiss up to them and all this sort of thing. Uh, sort of like the satellite countries for, for Soviet Union, you know, and uh, and but, you do have the right to rule yourself. It's is like the, the satellite countries of Soviet Union, Poland, Czechoslovakia, all the rest said they ruled themselves, provided they didn't get out of line with what the overlord wanted. So uh, let's say you're Jewish, and let's say you're living in Yehuda, like the prophet Jeremiah, and. The dominant power, for example, would be Bobo. All right. So you uh, do what the Babylonians want you to do in international affairs. Uh, if they want you to pay taxes and presents and tributes, so you do it. Uh, maybe there's a couple other things like that. But in return, you get to sort of rule yourself. So to use the terminology we were talking about the other day, you know, the summum bonum, uh, you have Yerushalayim. You have a of HaMikdash. If you want to, uh, you know, keep the mitzvahs of the Torah, sit and learn, as they say nowadays, you can do it. Uh, so, so the Yehuda won't be the, the powerful mover and shaker in Middle Eastern politics. Who cares? Why would you want to be? post us? You know, why bother? It's enough that we have control of our own territory from Jerusalem uh, south to uh, Be'er Sheva approximately, and, uh, and we have peace and security. Matter of fact, in a certain situation, it's actually better to be part of a of a, a subordinate situation because the overlord powers, like for example Bavril or Asha or Mitzrayim, because they were the powers that dominated everybody else, they could impose a peace. Historians talk about the Pax Romana. When the Roman Empire ruled everything, it was a peace that was a peace because the romans were in charge of everything i get that but peace is peace and if you do you understand what i'm saying were there any wars in eastern europe during the time the soviet union dominated everything the answer is no i hungary and romania would like to kill each other uh, all the time yeah i get that but uh the soviets wouldn't allow it uh there's arguments over territory between uh, you know, yugoslavia and hungary uh, the Soviets won't allow it. Do you get what I'm saying? The local quarrelsome stuff didn't happen because the higher power, the imperial power, the dominant power, would not allow it to happen. That, my friends, is the argument for imperialism. Today, imperialism is a dirty word, but uh, but it nevertheless exists, uh, and uh, we see this in the in the Putin Ukraine war. But the plus is that the imperial power um projects a certain peace and peace is not a small thing peace is not a small thing so for example i mean you don't realize we're living in such a world Um uh, i think many of you are familiar with the fact that the uh european countries used to fight each other yonval Volilo. and buckets of blood were always poured out in all these stupid little wars uh, throughout history, you know, in the ten hundreds, the 1100s, the 1200s, the 1300s, all the way down to the 1900s. And it's always you know, Italy versus Austria, for Germany versus France, you know what I mean, England versus France Spain versus, you know, Italy you know, the, the, those continuous wars I'm not exaggerating when I say that probably in every single year there was a war somewhere in Europe raging. Not everywhere, but somewhere I don't think that's an exaggeration, if you count Eastern Europe. Now, therefore, the latest manifestation of this was, in the first half of the 20th century, and when there were two big wars between the Germans on the one side and the British and French on the other. And millions of lives were lost. Shine. And then what happened? Well, ever since 1945, which is almost 80 years now, there's been no wars matter of fact, it's not even a desire for war right now, as far as I know. All those countries get along. Turns out, they can live with each other, even though France has Alsace-Lorraine and Germany has the Rhineland. Like, big deal. You know, big deal. And this is because American imperialism, so to speak. The U.S. won the war, and after the war, we had all the money. And the United States, this is a schwach, I'm saying, not a gnai. The United States used its power to get the Europeans to stop fighting each other. And so the French and the Germans dramatically uh, reconciled. And uh, like I say, today there's no thought that the French and Germans want to fight each other. Why would they want to do that? So that's the plus of imperialism. Now, uh, in the ca- by the way, when the Soviet Union withdrew, it fell apart in 1990 or whatever, so you talk to have some wars like in Kosovo and the Balkans and things like that. You know, you do have some wars like that. Okay, so let's say I'm Yermiyahu or Yeshayo or somebody like that. And like I said before, we have Yerushalayim. We have a base in Migdush, if we don't screw it up. Uh, we have the ability to practice our religion if we don't mess it up. Uh, we, If Bavel is in charge and all the little states of the region have to obey Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all, so then they won't attack each other, because Nebuchadnezzar won't allow it. So then guess what? We're not going to have those stupid constant wars that the king of Behu always had to do with Edom and Moab and Ammon and the Plishtim and so on and so forth, which always made life so lousy because you're a farmer. You don't realize, I don't think most people realize the messiahs of life in the biblical period. You're a farmer, you're trying to build, a, you know, your farm, put away a little, crops and money, and here comes an invasion party of the Plishtim or the Edom or the Midian or something like that. If you read in the Tanakh closely, especially Bukum Lachim, you see these references to raids and things back and forth and violence. It was like nuts. Uh, but that's that's how life was lived. That's how life was lived. Now, um, when there's an a, a, a overlord power like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. So he won't allow one group to do the other. He says, you're all under my control. Therefore, you know, mind your own business, don't attack each other. Uh, if you see, by the way, if you read closely in the uh, biblical books, when the king of Yehud eventually rebels against uh, Bovel, the king of Babel, Nebuchadnezzar, sends these other nations to attack them. That's why we say, "Aru oro out of Yesod, and all of a sudden, Edom and these other countries came, to join the attack against Jews because they got the green light from Nebuchadnezzar until then not. Okay. All this that I'm talking about is by way of saying that it was not really in the interest of the King the Yehuda, to try to mess with the system and rebel against Babel. But they were always seduced by the Egyptian diplomats. Because Egypt is the always is the other party that always wants to dominate it. Egypt, if it had its way, would do the same thing. They would be exercise. Uh, Imperial suzerainty over the states in the Middle East, and then you have an epoxy Egypticana, you know, an Egyptian type of peace. But the pharaohs would be the top dogs. Why the Egyptians want this? Well, you know, Egypt is a big bulgiver and so forth. And second of all, they want their national security protected. So the Egyptians have always been very good um, when it comes to seducing the Jews, maybe even out of Yomizet, and it's just like that peanuts. You know, she keeps. Putting the football and pushing it and pulling it away when the guy comes for a kick. Uh, the Egypt always did that to the to the Jews. And the Neveeam constantly referred to this as the Meshenis Khan Ratsut. a, uh, a weak read. And the result is that the Jews went down. Now, why am I giving this whole business Cerbatabus? Because if you think about it, the, the fast day, of course, commemorates the beginning of the Siege of Jerusalem. So what? Uh, why don't you uh, c- commemorate other parts? Why Tafka, the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem? Uh, and by the way, it's not 100% clear if that was exactly the day. You know, there's a difference of opinion. If it, I, I don't know if you notice, I assume you, many are familiar, there's a machlokis uh, Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Shimon, whether it's, its own, or I think, or something like that, refers to the 10th of Tavis or the 5th of Tavis. Um, You know, I mean, we've adopted the idea of Rabbi Kivas, the 10th of Tavis. I'm just saying, it's not so simple, but let's say the siege began today. So why are we uh, mourning this? Um, As I see it, uh, we mourn uh, the stupid stubbornness of our ancestors. Uh, And that's a problem that's permanent. Because usually when they have a fast day that entered the Jewish, excuse me, calendar, it's because it contains some long-term permanent element, not something that simply happened long ago. We're not much of a religion of commemorating historical dates of long ago. For whatever reason, the Jewish religion never evolved quite that way. But rather, they looked at certain events in the past and they see them as paradigmatic. That, you know, it happened before and it happens again. It's, It's cyclical. We do dumb and stupid things as a people, and we're stubborn when we don't listen to the people that we should listen to. In the case I'm talking about, of course, they should have listened to Yermio, I think you know this. Yermio was the prophet at that time, and he was a genuine nubby. Uh, and he said, you know, don't uh, mess with Babel. That's like a major theme of the book of Yermio. If you cannot run with their dogs, how are you going to run with their horses? You know, uh, meaning you're a small country, you can't take on Babel. And second of all, there's no reason to take on bubble because as I said before, you have Mikdush, you have everything you need, you have the yeshivas, you know, you have, you, you have your own country, you grow your own fruit, you, you have your own prosperity, if you're endowed with prosperity, not as if you act the right way. So what's well, Mayor Duffman, you know, it, 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 what, you're going to conquer the Middle East? First of all, you're not going to do that. Second of all, why would you want to do that? You get it? The Jewish religion, especially in the biblical period, it's not really imperialistic. David and had a couple of wars, and I could talk even about that, but I'm not going to uh, right now. But in general, who needs it? Metaphobia, You know, uh, this the state of Israel today want to conquer Syria or something? Like that. What do you What do you want it for? It would be bad if we did that. We just want to hold what we have. That's all we want to hold what we have. So in the case of the king of Judah, remember the kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes were lost, were gone by then. So the whole trick was, don't mess with Babel, and Yermio, I said before was real, nubby. No, repeats this theme over and over again, but the ruling class and the king of Yuda didn't listen. Now, what does that have to do with Asar Okay, very quickly, uh, Nebuchadnezzar became the top dog in the Middle East, but the, there were three kings, A, B, and C. There was Yehoyakim, and then Yehoyachin, and then Tzikiyahu. There's A, B, and C. Yehoyakim, Yehoyachin, and then Tzikiyahu. So Yehoyakim was uh, an Egyptian candidate on the throne. and Therefore, he backed Egypt against Babel. And he had his head handed to him. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar invaded, beat him, captured the Resimus, and marched them on a death march that he died for Eschamor. It was very wicked, but we won't go into that. So, in other words, early on, the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Yehuda sided with Egypt against Babylon, and they were invaded and defeated. And the king was overthrown. Now, um, then came the king B, Yehoyachin. There are different accounts in the Tanakh between Deborah Yavim and Malachim, but the bottom line is, it was a young king who took over when his father was killed by Nebuchadnezzar. But within a very short time, he also had to give in. And Nebuchadnezzar came and was really PO at everybody and blamed the elites of the kingdom of Judah for following a pro-Egyptian, anti-Babylonian policy. And instead of killing everybody and wiping out the base of Megiddo, he simply removed Elite A, and replaced them with Elite B. He got rid of yo Yachin and all of his guys, that's the harsh and Mazgar story, and marched them off to Babylon, and as I mentioned the other day, kept him in prison until he died as a political prisoner. When he died, did Nebuchadnezzar's son, uh this is many years later, let him go. Uh, that's what happened to Yo Yachin. But, as I said before, Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm gonna take Elite a, and remove them from the scene, and replace them with elite B, the idea being, you should be on my team. I want you, the second elite, to be pro bovel After all, I put you in power. And second of all, I'm leaving you your own country. I'm letting you have a base of Migdosh. I'm not persecuting the Jewish religion. I'm not doing anything to you. But I am the superpower over here. And I'm not going to have it that the local little countries do whatever they want. they got to listen to what I tell them. Uh, and that's how he put Sid on the throne. uh Kiyo, the last king of Judah, uh, therefore, came onto the throne as a leader of elite B, and with the idea and the promise even, it says he took an oath uh, to be pro-Babylonian. Okay, so what's the problem with that? Again, you can keep Shabbos, you can keep mitzvahs, you can... Observe, Targumists. You have a base on Migdash. The possibilities of Ruchnius, if you want, you go there. Are there? I'll say it again. You have a base on Megdoshkin and the whole nine yards. Um, the kingdom of Yehud, of course, had its own religious problems because it was a time of Votizar. But nevertheless, that's got nothing to do with foreign policy. Or it shouldn't. That's something that Jews should deal with on their own. But he didn't listen and instead he was seduced by the Egyptians, once again, and uh, sided with them against Babylonia. So even though he was put in as Team B, and even though he was put in by Nebuchadnezzar to be pro bubble that's the reason he was put on the throne, he and his gang and his advisors, they flipped. Well, first of all, that's a bad politics. The first rule in politics is you should be loyal to the one who built you up. As Abraham Lincoln said... An honest politician is a, is somebody who, when you buy him, he stays bought, <laughs> right? You know, you make a commitment, you, you keep the commitment. So, uh, and he didn't. So basically, Sichio uh, and his his group violated the first rule of politics, which is they bit the hand that fed them. I don't blame Nebuchadnezzar for being angry. If it if it happened to me or to you, you feel the same way. You say I went and put this guy in there, and then he turned on and joined my enemy. Uh, and therefore Nebuchadnezzar was really Piot invaded uh, the kingdom of Judah again. The Jews didn't have a chance. And there began the siege of Jerusalem. That's Asar B'tavis. Now, here's my point. Yermiyahu says in the book that even though you've done things that will make the king really PEOed at you, and you probably figure he's going to come and kill you and torture you and this and the other, but it's not true. If you surrender, you know, he'll let it go. You understand? Now, think about what I'm saying, says Yermio. You joined the Egyptian side, but obviously the Egyptians aren't there to help you. Uh, You see the Babylonian army is very powerful. As Yermio puts it, God himself put Nebuchadnezzar as as the top dog, otherwise he wouldn't have risen to power. We are Jewish, so we believe that there's somebody upstairs running the show, especially when it comes to international politics. So, how did Nebuchadnezzar become so powerful? B'nai Shalom put him in there. You know, Chazal have their way of explaining it with this, story with Samchaer, but nevertheless, it's this is you know this is the way the cards are being dealt. Uh, so now that the city is under siege, it means that the rest of the kingdom has been invaded and conquered, and all that's left. Is Jerusalem, which is now being surrounded with a wall and going to be starved out. So, at this point, at least, the course of events has led to a situation where you see you back the wrong course. And what you should do is surrender, appeal to Nebuchadnezzar, and say, I'm very sorry, I made a terrible mistake. I know I deserve bad and all the rest of it. I hope you'll show me mercy. And he will. Now, Yermio was a real Navi. Now, I understand it's easy for me to sit here and say that, and they probably figured, I'm sure they figured, that whatever Yermio says, Nebuchadnezzar is going to roast and toast them, uh, bake them and, and shake him, uh, cut them to pieces and all the rest of it, because that's what they do in the Middle East. But, to be perfectly honest, the most he would do would be to replace Team B with Team C. That's what he did the first time, he replaced Team A, which was Yehoiachin, with Team B, which was Sikiyahu. And in worst case, they would carry off Sikiyahu. Worst worst case, they would carry off Sikiyahu to exile in Babylonia in a dungeon there, but they would leave the kingdom alone. So at this point, Sikiyahu and the nobles, if they would have been patriots, would have said, we're going to sacrifice our own selves on behalf of the kingdom. And rather than bring on a Corbin... Let's try to uh, treat with and uh, appeal to the Babylonian armies besieging us. After all, where is it going? If they joined the Egyptians against the Babylonians, it only made sense if some kind of major war erupts in the Middle East, and there's at least a chance for both armies to have a shot at winning. But if the Babylonian army was able to penetrate and take over Yehuda, that all that's left is Jerusalem, and now they're beginning a siege a Sarbatavis and building a wall around Jerusalem so nobody's getting in and out. And as we all know, that resulted in starvation. Uh right, as you know it from the book of Echo. So um uh obviously the plan didn't work. Because obviously, the idea that there would be some kind of war in which at least the Egyptian side would have a chance didn't didn't pan out. So at that point, you have to be realistic and say, we made a mistake, made a boo-boo, and we're going to follow Miyahu, and let's send for, a, a, you know, appeal for a, a, some kind of surrender on terms. And I'll say it again, and Yermiyahu said that Hashem told him that, you know, if you surrender, you will not get hurt. Maybe get wrapped on the knuckles or something like that. Uh, but they didn't. So, in other words, the siege began and continued, and as we know, it continued all the way through till Tisha B'av, until everything was destroyed. Uh, which means that even though evidence demonstrated that they were following the wrong policy, empirical evidence demonstrated they backed the wrong horse. Yirmiyahu, who had a good track record because he was a everything he said had come true, was telling them that there's a way out. There's a way out. Uh, in other words, there's an honorable surrender. It, it'll work. They wouldn't listen to him. So in other words, they persuaded themselves, or the Egyptians, diplomats, persuaded them to hold out. Uh, you know, to hold out. Uh, even though you see the evidence before you, the people starving to death, and the, it does say the Egyptian army came to relieve them, but then, you know, Nebuchadnezzar beat them back. So, in other words, the siege itself never went away. So, the nobles and the king so persuaded themselves, even the odds were 1,001, that they're following the right Mahalach, that they were captives of the Eights of and they couldn't give in. And they saw the whole thing through till Corbin. So, Asar Bataevus never represents. The 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 triumph of arrogance, of uh, stubbornness, the inability to say I'm wrong. Uh, I'd rather take the whole country down with me, which they did do. I'd rather bring the Churban base Amigdash, which they did do, rather than say, "Oh, maybe we have a boo Maybe we should listen to me." Uh, after all, why don't we send him, the Prophet Jeremiah, to be the negotiator with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, if he's wrong. We'll find out, but if he's right, we got a way out. They did not do that. I think many of you are familiar with the fact that this entire time, the nobles wanted to kill yermiel and he was in a jail in protective custody, as we say today, to protect him from being killed by the nobles. So the beginning of the siege is unfortunately a monument to Jewish arrogance and self-deception, which is a national problem we have. And it requires teshuva you know, In other words, it requires rethinking this attitude. Uh, I don't know. It's funny to me because I don't think most people realize the story I just mentioned, even though it's in the Tanakh. And I I doubt that's how they uh, perceive, shall we say, you know, uh, uh, Sarbatavis. It's really like the unknown fast day. And usually there's a lot of uh, Dvar Torahs on the, you know, that have nothing to do with a Sarbatavis per se. Uh, and Jonas and has a nice speech, he always does, where he says, Oh, we need a Sarbatabis because there's no uh, sphera or three weeks. That's in the summer. In the winter, we have nothing. A Sarbatabis is a Musa moment. Uh, he's not wrong about that, but the Musa would be what I just said before. How many times do we as individuals, and certainly the Jews as a nation, just dig our, our heels in and say, I'm not changing, I'm not uh, uh, modifying anything I'm doing? Uh, Without realizing that really you're you're in the in the hands of the or horror who prevents you, you know, from acknowledging uh, mistakes. We all know that the, in life the big trick is to acknowledge mistakes when they happen. Uh, nobody's perfect. Everybody makes mistakes. The only thing is you realize it. You know, do uh, you ever have a situation where you and your spouse, once somebody did something wrong, and the other one says, "Oh, you did something wrong," and then you say, I "Guess, it's true. I made a mistake. It won't happen again." That takes the air out of the, out of the fight uh, because you would you know the point is made the point is made uh the cholesterol did not do this and that is why God says to the Jezkel, note the day when the siege begins because you're gonna see that they're gonna their stubbornness is going to carry them through to complete Corbin and take them down uh, I hope you know that uh, the like Israel and others realize this, and you know, when they do something wrong, realize you're doing something wrong, and uh, you know, modify your behavior accordingly. Um, but the HR is very clever, usually, people are very stubborn and they don't want to admit they ever did anything wrong, and they'd rather dig in their heels and bring down a korban rather than admit the truth. So, that is the uh, a plain as I understand, that's the plain meaning of the Sarbatavis. And it is indeed a Musser Haskell, not only at the national level, but also at the individual level. And um, with that, I'm going to wish everybody an easy fast and thank the Elbaum family. It should be a uh, tribute to Jerry Elbaum, who many of us remember well, and uh, and family, Avram, I'm thinking of. And uh, with that, I wish you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbydavidkatz.com.